My topic, faith, hope, and love, the ecumenical trio of virtues. Faith, hope, and love, that trio comes, of course, from the last verse in the 13th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. Now there abide these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. They are traditionally known as theological virtues because they are experienced as being directly infused by God. They are God's gifts to us and they are gifts to be received and exercised and practice. Ecumenical virtues, yes, because they are intended for each and every Christian, because they are intended for each and every Christian community, and this is the point that I want to emphasize particularly perhaps now, is ecumenical because they are ironically places in which Christians have divided, but they can be the places in which through working together at faith, hope, and love, we can come closer to that unity which properly belongs to Christ's church. So there's an explanation in three or four sentences of the whole thing, but don't go home yet. We had spirit of faith this morning connected with holy baptism. Now this evening, my theme will be the second of those virtues, hope, and I shall connect that with the Lord's Prayer. And then tomorrow morning, the third virtue of love, I shall connect with the Lord's Supper. So each of those three theological virtues are seen as depending upon God's presence and action, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and are seen as being served by three rites or practices which the Lord Jesus himself bequeathed to the church. Faith and holy baptism, hope and the Lord's prayer, love and the Lord's supper. And I recall this morning how at the last full assembly of the World Council of Churches, the churches were summoned to let their faith, hope, and love work in and through them towards the restoration of unity. So let me start then this evening on hope. We need to make the transition from faith to hope. And we may find help in the first verse of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. King James Version. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the Revised Standard Version. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. A couple of tricky Greek words involved here in hypostasis and elenkos. And the Greek words are quite technical terms with a range of philosophical associations. On the basis of that first 
verse of Hebrews 11, we could say that the content of faith is what grounds or underlies hope. That's what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying by that to get at the word hypostasis. We could say that the content of faith is what grounds or underlies hope. It is what things hoped for stand upon, hypostasis. And the act of faith gives insight into things not yet seen. Considering hope as a theological virtue, we may emphasize not only its future direction, but its eschatological range. And it will find its liturgical match in the Lord's Prayer. Raymond Brown, the Catholic New Testament scholar of the mid to late 20th century, wrote a 35-page exegesis of Our Father, precisely under the title, The Paternoster, the Our Father, as an eschatological prayer. And I have a copy of it here, signed by Raymond Brown. Ray Brown was, in fact, my closest friend and colleague during my short time of teaching at the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And also during the earliest years of my membership of the international dialogue between the World Methodist Council and the Roman Catholic Church. And I draw with confidence upon Raymond Brown's work. A solid and prominent theme of New Testament scholarship in the 20th century was the kingdom of God. With, of course, nuances among the exegetes as to its understanding. Unquestioned was the connection between the kingdom of God and Jesus. As to his person, his teaching and preaching... Think of a famous book by C.H. Dodd, a classic book, The Parables of the Kingdom. His social activity and his mighty deeds, his death and resurrection, and indeed his expected return. Jesus and the kingdom are inalienably associated in our New Testament texts. Scholars varied only as to the temporal stages of the kingdom's coming in its multiform association with Jesus, and as to possible shifts in its timing and interpretation as the oral and written witness of the New Testament authors evolved. Let me jump boldly into the Lord's Prayer and, off my own bat, take Thy Kingdom Come as its key petition around which the other clauses cluster. As to the second in our trio of virtues, the virtue of hope, we may say that in and through the prayer taught by the Lord Jesus, believers are given a confident hope to enjoy and exercise in the direction of God's final kingdom. All the way along to its final achievement. In the very address, Our Father who art in heaven, Jesus associates his disciples with himself in access 
to the prime and ultimate ruler of all. This is what Raymond Brown says. I quote, in the New Testament, God's fatherhood is put on the basis of union with Jesus, who is God's son in a special way. He alone can call God my father in the proper sense. Those who unite themselves, themselves to him share his power to do so through God's gift. This New Testament concept, says Brown, of God's fatherhood and Christian sonship gives an eschatological tone to the title of the Paternoster. For if we examine the Synoptic Gospels carefully, we find, he says, becoming sons of God is something that happens in the last days and in the heavenly kingdom. Hence, if in the Paternoster Christians can address God as Father, it is because they are anticipating their state of perfection, which will come at the close of the age. They are anticipating, he says, the coming of God's eschatological kingdom, which is already incipient, beginning in the preaching of Jesus. Other New Testament writers may phrase things differently, says Brown, but there is no contradiction. Paul and John treat sonship as a gift already conferred. In John's thought, by divine begetting, in Paul's thought, by adoption. This is an aspect of realized eschatology. We believe, says Brown, that both views of the divine sonship stem from the mind of Christ. Both views are true. We are God's sons now through sanctifying grace, but his sonship will be perfected in ultimate union with God. And both Paul and John recognize this, says Brown. He quotes Romans 8, 23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Now let me come to the interpretation of the several petitions of the Lord's Prayer with an eye to seeing the match with the virtue of hope. Where appropriate, I'll shade our interpretations to the stage in which we now find ourselves in relation to God's kingdom, between the first coming of Christ and his final coming. The way to God's final kingdom may be gradual, but not necessarily even. Says Leslie Newbegin, in view of the barriers of sin, failure, corruption, and death, there is no straight line of development from here to the kingdom. So Leslie Newbegin in some lectures that he gave in Bangalore in 1941, and I was pleased to get the manuscript of those and edit and publish them after Newbegin's death under the title, Signs Amid the Rubble, The Purposes of God in Human History. Given that notion that there is no easy straight line between where we are now and the kingdom, endurance and character come into play, both for the individual and for the race. 
This morning I said that uh, we might also set our three faith, hope, and love virtues in relation to Romans 5, beginning of Romans 5, and those words of character and endurance figure in that passage, Romans 5. If we think in terms of the classic streams of ecumenism in the 20th century, it is perhaps in relation to the theme, the, the stream of life and work that hope first comes on the scene. You remember perhaps from 20th century church history, the three streams in the ecumenical movement, faith and order, mission and evangelism, life and work. Now I'm suggesting that it is perhaps in relation to life and work that the theme of hope is best related. In this time between the times, between the first coming and the final coming of Christ, Christians and their communities may cooperate in promoting the values of God's kingdom in the civic and social areas of existence, life and work. However, the eschatological horizon must not be forgotten, whether for each person and family, or for the ecclesial and secular communities, or for humankind as a whole. There are ultimate matters of vocation and destiny for all. The Westminster Confession famously asks, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, back directly to the Lord's Prayer again. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. Linguists tell us that the Passive voice is a Semitic idiom indicating that only God, who alone is holy in himself, can make manifest the sanctity of his own name. Hallowed be thy name is then a prayer asking God to show the sanctity of God's own name and character. And a similar argument might perhaps be made in the case of the third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, it may be that this is only God's action which can make God's will done. But I myself, for my part, I wouldn't wish to exclude at least a secondarily active role for God's creatures in these respects of hallowing God's name and doing God's will. In the acknowledgement then of God's holiness, as well as in the cooperation towards the full and final achievement of God's will as the universal manifestation of his glory. Glory, that's another word that comes in in the Romans 5 passage. That would include us, that final manifestation of God's glory. That would include us humans who were and are made in the image of God with a view to attaining his likeness. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. A variant reading in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer phrases the second petition, May your Holy Spirit come upon us and purify us. And when in Acts 
chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the disciples ask about the coming of God's kingdom. The risen Jesus answers them in terms of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The tone may appear to shift in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But even such a modest request would not be unsuitable to God's patient provision for us along the historical way, that way which is not easy and straight, to the final kingdom. The petition, though, may become more exciting if we look more closely at that strange word, epiousios. Give us today our epiousion bread. The linguistics are complicated, but what we are perhaps being instructed to pray for is our tomorrow's bread, our tomorrow's bread, where the eschatological resonance would not be far to seek. Christians then will be praying for the bread that will be given them at the heavenly table, where the saints will hunger no more, but rather feast openly with Christ. In my early book, Eucharist and Eschatology, I traced how the historic liturgies of the church echo and develop the gospel sayings concerning the sacramental feeding on Christ as the bread from heaven, the bread of life, in prayerful and hopeful anticipation of the heavenly banquet in the final kingdom. But meanwhile, the Lord's Prayer brings us back to earth in the fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Along the way, then, we are encouraged to mutual forgiveness and reconciliation as various gospel sayings and parables make clear. Raymond Brown summarizes the point in this way. In the last days, the followers of Christ will receive the fullness of divine sonship, their forgiveness of one another as brothers and sisters, and their forgiveness by their father are both parts of this great gift. In the petition of the Paternoster, Brown says, they stand by anticipation before the throne of God and they request the supreme and final act of fatherly forgiveness, even as they extend the complete and final act of brotherly and sisterly forgiveness. This forgiveness in both directions, he says, removes all obstacles to the perfect community of the heavenly banquet table for which they have asked in the fourth petition. Then in the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christians are praying for preservation from the final diabolic onslaught, says Brown, or deliverance from the titanic struggle with Satan that stands between the community and the realization of its prayer. The return of Christ, he says, comes persistently closer each day. And the scholar concludes his eschatological exegesis of the Lord's Prayer by remarking that the Paternoster, said as a fervent Maranatha, would not be an inappropriate welcome. In establishing the match between the virtue of faith and the dominically instituted rite of holy baptism, we look for support in the sixth chapter of the letter to the Romans. 
in showing now the match between the virtue of hope and the pattern of the Lord's own prayer, we may turn to the eighth chapter of that Pauline epistle, which I'm sure you all have present in your mind. It's a long chapter. Declaring to those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, that you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 9, the Apostle promises that if the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit which dwells in you. There you have that Trinitarian dimension which I mentioned this morning, Christological center and Trinitarian dimension to all these things that I'm talking about. And he says, Paul says in verses 23 through 25, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees, says Paul. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Another of those words from Romans 5, patience. And all this is set in the context of prayer in Romans 8, which Christians as God's adopted children are privileged in term, to say in terms of Abba, Father, precisely Abba, Father. And when in our weakness we do not know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. Verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. The Apostle goes on to say that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And he voices the assumption that neither now nor in the final testing will anything be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last verses of Romans 8. Such is the present and ultimate match between hope and prayer according to Christ. The praying of the Lord's Prayer may perhaps be characterized as hope in action, an instance of the cooperation of humans with God for the sake, finally, of God's glory and human salvation. Now, what are the ecumenical dimensions of this, of this combination of hope and the Lord's Prayer with a view more precisely to unity among Christians and between their various communities. Let me begin anecdotally. I well remember from my days as an undergraduate at the University of Cambridge in the late 1950s that from the Roman Catholic side, the only religious act that was permissible between Catholics and Protestants was the saying of the Lord's Prayer together. From the Catholic side, that was only a recently accorded permission. For many of us on both sides, these occasions were special moments of grace, even if we didn't know whether or not to go on and say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory at the end of the prayer. In the earliest 
centuries of our Christian era, the Lord's Prayer was delivered and taught to all new Christians in connection with their baptism. There's a famous and important article by T.W. Manson, the great English New Testament scholar of mid-20th century, in the bulletin of the John Rylands Library, Manchester, just entitled simply, The Lord's Prayer. And he illustrates all the cases where new Christians were taught the Lord's Prayer in connection with their baptism. A patristic text, in fact, which highlights the themes of salvific hope and Christian unity in its exposition of the Our Father is the treatise on the Lord's Prayer from the hand of St. Cyprian of Carthage in the mid-third century. This is what he says, the gospel precepts which include the Lord's Prayer are nothing else than divine teachings, foundations on which to build hope, supports to strengthen faith, foods to nourish the heart, guides to direct our journey, guards on the way to salvation, which, while they instruct the receptive minds of believers on the earth, lead them to the heavenly realms. That's the function of the Lord's Prayer, according to Cyprian, that connection with hope and the final destiny. As to our Father, he says, he is the Father of those who believe, of those who, being sanctified by him, and restored by the birth of spiritual grace, have begun to be children of God. And when we call God Father, he says, we ought to act as God's children. By praying for the divine will to be done by those who are still on earth, by which he means those who do not yet believe, believers are, by divine instruction, meanwhile praying for the salvation of all. Gathered for prayer, Christians do not say, give me this day my daily bread. Rather, our prayer is common and collective. And when we pray, we pray not for one, but for the whole people. Because we are all one people together. The God of peace and the teacher of concord, says Cyprian, who taught unity, willed that one should thus pray for all, just as he himself bore the weight of all of us together. And invoking Matthew 25, 23 and, uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, on the need for reconciliation before the making of an offering, Cyprian writes, Our peace and fraternal agreement is the greater sacrifice to God and a people united in the unity of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then he invokes Acts chapter 1, verse 14, for the sake of the apostles and the women with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who after the Lord's ascension continued with one accord in prayer. And Cyprian concludes that God admits into the divine and eternal home only those who are of one mind in prayer. Arriving at John 17, Cyprian came to the words of the Lord that have been such an inspiration to those committed to the ecumenical cause of restored unity among divided Christians. The Lord Jesus, he says, envisages more than his immediate apostles when on the eve of his suffering he entreats the Father for all. 
Neither do I pray for these alone, but for those also who shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us. And Cyprian continues, Great alike is the Lord's kindness, no less than his mercy, in respect of our salvation, in that not content to redeem us with his blood, he in addition also prayed for us. And see now what was the desire of his petition, that just as the Father and the Son are one, so also we should abide in that unity. From this it may be understood how greatly one sins who rends unity and peace. That is why the Lord prayed thus for his people, wishing that they should have life, since he knew that discord cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Discord cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There is also another evangelical text which paints a cameo or an icon of Christians joining together in prayer under the Lord's inspiration for the unity of the church. I'm thinking now of Matthew 18, verses 20 and 21. There Jesus encouraged his disciples in this way. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Hearing the Lord speak those words, one can almost catch a glimpse of the representatives from World Council of Churches, Faith and Order and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity gathered in their annual meeting in order to settle on the themes and texts for next year's Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. Do you observe that? In January, usually. Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And let it finally be mentioned that the vision of the ecumenical partners will extend to the end of Jesus' sentence in John 17, 21. That they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Ut unum sint, ut mundus credat, as I quoted from the Latin, though I don't think Jesus said it in Latin, actually, but it's often quoted in that form, that they may be one in order that the world may believe in the divine origin and mission of Christ. Unity among Christians and our communities is integral to our missionary witness and thus to the hope for the world's coming to faith in the Lord and thereby to salvation. Disunity among Christians, dissension, dispute, in fact is a counter witness to the gospel which we are meant to embody and to preach. Let me mention one more ecumenical feature which in a matching of hope and prayer may bring the final kingdom of God qualitatively if not temporally nearer. I first became a member of the first Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches um, in the 1970s and at that time the Faith and Order Commission was concluding its study of hope. 
that had been a big theme in the 1960s and 1970s, those of you old enough to remember. Hope was a big theme. Jürgen Moltmann's theology of hope stood at the head for many people of that interest. The Second Vatican Council, um, its pastoral constitution was headed um, joy and hope, gaudium et spes. And for most things, that sense of hope in the 60s and 70s referred very much to this earth, to the earthly conditions and the need to alleviate suffering and despair among those who lacked hope. Now, I became at that point, as I say, in the late 70s, a member of the faith and order of the uh, Commission of the World Council of Churches. And its study of hope was just being concluded. Sharing in one hope, Commission on Faith and Order, Bangalore, 1978. Most of the chapters in that study of hope were devoted, as I say, to this worldly hopes, questions of the condition of people in this world. But I was asked, as the commission was drawing to its conclusion, suddenly to uh, chair a drafting group that will prepare a little report, at least, on martyrdom as ultimate hope. And this would figure under the heading, Witness Unto Death, as the final document, the final section of this document. This is what we said under that title of Martyrdom as Witness Unto Death. In the witness of the martyrs, we may rediscover the effective work of Christ, who breaks down the barriers erected by sin and human weakness. In the martyrs, the church discerns Christ himself beyond all inter interpretations and divisions. That is why the martyrs of the early church and some great witnesses in the later history of the church are the common property of all Christians. The martyr bears witness to the living God and to the coming of God's kingdom. By his or her death, the martyr consists contests all attitudes which would absolutize the present state of affairs. Yet Christian hope does not demobilize us with regard to engagement in history. On the contrary, it supplies reasons for such involvement and the courage to undertake it. The Christian knows that he or she is sharing in the work of God which aims to bring about a new creation. Hope inspires acts or attitudes which announce the definitive kingdom of God. Martyrs, witness unto death. Already the Second Vatican Council, in acknowledging the truly Christian endowments for our common heritage which are to be found among our separated brothers and sisters, the Second Vatican Council had mentioned in particular the riches of Christ and virtuous works in the lives of others who are bearing witness to Christ, sometimes even to the shedding of their blood. And Pope John Paul II, in his 1995 encyclical letter, Ut Unum Sint, developed the thought that all Christian communities have martyrs 
for the Christian faith. He says, we Christians already have a common martyrology. And full communion, he says, extends to all the saints, those who at the end of a life faithful to grace are in communion with Christ in glory. These saints, he says, come from all the churches and ecclesial communities which gave them entrance into the communion, communion of salvation. When we speak of a common heritage, we must acknowledge as part of that not only the institutions, rights, means of salvation, and the traditions which all the communities have preserved and by which they have shaped, but first and foremost, this reality of holiness. Our common martyrology, indeed the heavenly communion of all the saints, entails, we may say, a fellowship also for us in prayer. The saints, the martyrs especially perhaps, who are already closer to God and closer to that final kingdom. They belong to all of us and we belong to them. And they, in our fellowship of prayer, prayer perhaps in both directions, we can rejoice with them and they can intercede for us. An exercise of hope by those who bore witness to the point of death.